Hey guys, welcome back to The Killer Kind. Now, I know you're probably about ready to kill me, um, hopefully not literally, but I know I missed putting out an episode last week after I promised that it would, and that was absolutely not my plan. I really, really tried to get an episode for you, um, but it was going to be a day late when I realized that I just needed to kind of put it on pause and just put out a new episode this week instead. So I apologize for that. Um, long story short, some close family of ours contracted COVID and were in the hospital um, after quarantining for about a week and a half. One of them had to go into the hospital, um, and they are one of the—they're one of the ones that keep my little girl during the week while I work. So, thank the Lord, though they're home now and they're doing better. But I did have to quarantine with my 11-month-old while trying to work from home. Plus, I had three deadlines at work in just under a week and a half. I mean, I honestly don't know if this means anything to you guys, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but I truly it was tested the last two weeks. I don't know how I survived the madness, honestly. But with all that said, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I think it's worth the wait. I know, like I always say that, (laughs) but I truly try to put out good episodes and good, um, and talk about good cases for you or interesting. I wouldn't say good, interesting cases for you that I think you'll enjoy. Now, before we get into this week's case, I have my first follow-up for you on a case that we talked about previously here. It's actually the very first case that I covered here on The Killer Kind. It was the disappearance turned murder of Savannah Spurlock. So, if you have not listened to that episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. Um, Definitely do that before listening any further in this episode because this will be a spoiler for you if you haven't heard it. So, just go back and listen to that. I'll pause so you can come back later. (laughs) Now, to refresh your memory for those who have listened to this, um, or to this case, this was the tragic case of Savannah Spurlock, like I said, who went out to a bar on January 3rd, 2019 with a couple of friends just a few weeks after giving birth to twins. She left the bar with three random men as seen on the bar's security cameras, And she initially was just considered missing. You know, her family and friends had heard from her. You know, they just started searching. Later, her body was found in a field behind David Sparks' parents' home. This is one of the men that she left the bar with that night. It was determined that David Sparks was the killer. However, he had pretty much been or has been maintaining his innocence. And there has not been a trial or a plea deal or of any kind made even as uh, early as June of this year. Now, that being said, we have now learned that David did, in fact, finally take a plea deal. Therefore, this case will not be going to trial. Um, Savannah's family is obviously thankful that they don't have to sit through the trial and have to relive all of this over again. However, Shaq Smith, the father of three of Savannah's children, told the local news that he felt like It's a relief for everyone who was close to Savannah, but to him, this didn't really serve as justice. He went on to say that he was thankful that David Sparks had to stand up in court and admit to killing the young mom, which he did in order for him taking the plea deal. That was part of it. He had to stand up in court and say that he did it. So obviously, that's good to hear. Um, 
he basically confessed and that sweet family doesn't have to sit through a trial. Plus, trials can actually go either direction. I mean, at least there's comfort knowing that he'll be behind bars no matter what because who knows what can come out on trial. Trials are so 50-50 sometimes. Sometimes they can go one way where you think obviously it should and the other ways it can just, I don't know, it can blow up. So thankful that he took a plea deal and doesn't have to put the family through this. Now, sentencing did occur just last week on the 17th, and he did receive the maximum of 50 years in prison. So that is a relief there as well. Well, all right, you guys, I'm glad I could share that update with you. But without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our second and final Christmas episode of the season and discuss the Santa Claus Killer. Covina, California is a city in Los Angeles County, California, about 22 miles east of downtown LA, with a population of around 48,000 people. And this is where our case took place back on Christmas Eve 2008. Joseph Ortega, or Papa Joe, as his grandkids called him, who was 80 years old, and Alice Ortega, 70, had been happily married for 53 years. Joseph was retired from his successful industrial paint business. Alice's oldest grandson said she was the perfect Hispanic grandmother, always had lots of love to give and lots of food as well. The Ortegas were pretty well known in the community as well, having been in the area for many, many years. The entire neighborhood the Ortegas lived in spoke very highly of Joseph and Alice and also all five of their adult children. Um, Family and friends and neighbors said each member of the Ortega family would give you a hug and a kiss if you walked in the room. They were always the most respectful people and they were just loved by anyone that knew them. Now, Joseph and Alice loved Christmas time. This was pretty well known. I mean, the whole family did. Actually, it was just a wonderful excuse to get the whole family together under one roof. Every Christmas Eve, the Ortegas would invite all of their five adult children over to their home. Their two oldest sons, Joseph and Charles Ortega, both married with kids of their own. Then the other three were Alicia, Leticia, and Sylvia. Alicia and Leticia were both married with children as well. And Sylvia was actually going through a divorce at the time, but she did have three children of her own from a previous relationship. On Christmas Eve 2008, the family came together to celebrate the holiday as they did every year. And the house was full. There was reports saying that there was 20 to 30 people there just being the immediate family. I mean, raise your hand if you can understand that. I mean, we're trying to plan a first birthday here and we can't get it under 40, but COVID, we're not going to have 40 people together. So we're trying to figure that out. Um, Anyways, on this particular Christmas Eve night, the family enjoyed a nice family Christmas dinner together. And then afterwards, the adults went on to play poker Their oldest grandson said that was the only time he ever saw his granddad raise his voice or get really excited. It was always a pretty intense game um, of poker for the family, but it was a fun Christmas Eve tradition. Now, 
All of the grandchildren kind of spread out around the house. Um, just to give you an idea, most playing video games or hanging out in the backyard by the pool. Um, there was a 17-year-old named Michael who stayed upstairs and just kind of played on the computer. You know how teenage boys can be. Um, unsure what he was doing up there, but I'm sure it's it's not really relevant here. It just kind of giving you an idea of where everybody was in the home. Now, around 11.30 p.m. that night, the party was winding down and everyone was starting to get ready to head home for the night. It was then that the doorbell rang to the family home. Shortly after the doorbell sounded, police received 911 calls from the Ortega's neighbor. The caller cried, come immediately. They're burning down someone's house. The fire department was dispatched to the Ortega home, but the calls kept coming in. Some even reported that they had heard gunshots coming from the home, and when police arrived at the scene, it was total chaos. One officer said, when I arrived, to describe it as apocalyptic would be accurate. The only Ortega family member police could locate was Letitia. She had managed to escape the fire with her husband and eight-year-old daughter and make it to a neighbor's house. However, Letitia's daughter had been shot, so the family had already made their way to the hospital. When police were told what had happened, they were shocked, to say the least. Letitia reported that someone dressed as Santa Claus had unexpectedly rang the doorbell around 11.30. Then Letitia's 8-year-old daughter shouted, Santa Claus, Santa Claus, you know, Santa's at the door. That's awesome. However, seconds later, the door opened and that little girl was shot. Several more shots rang out and ultimately someone set the house on fire following the shots. After striking the little girl first, the shooter went on to take the lives of Joseph Jr. and Charles Ortega. Joseph and Alice and three of their daughters dove under the dining room table for cover. However, they were unable to save themselves. All in all, Joseph and Alice Ortega, four of their children, two daughters-in-law, and the teenage boy upstairs at the computer were shot and killed at Christmas Eve that night. In the middle of investigating the chaotic scene, police also received a tip from a neighbor. She and her husband had seen a car leaving the cul-de-sac at around 11.45, so this clearly happened very quickly. After putting out an APB on the car, police started sifting through the Ortega's scorched home. Because like I said, after the shooting rampage, the house was set on fire. We'll come back to that later. They found the bodies burned beyond recognition, which, however, were later identified as nine of the Ortega family members. While police were busy investigating this Christmas Eve massacre, Investigations in the neighboring city of Silmer, California, were called to the home of Brad Pardo, who returned home from a Christmas party to find his brother, Bruce, lying dead in a pool of blood. Once they arrived, police found a single shot from a 9mm handgun in Bruce's head. There was a 9mm pistol in Bruce's lap, and there was actually a second 9 millimeter handgun on the floor. 
And police also noticed another bullet hole in the ceiling. And they believed there might have been a second shooter at the scene. So at this point, you're right thinking, what is the connection here, right? Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so police started trying to figure out who Bruce Pardo was. And after looking into Bruce's past, investigators discovered that he was actually the ex-husband to Sylvia Ortiz, who whose divorce from Bruce was finalized on December 18th, 2008, just a few days prior to this Christmas holiday. Police dug into their, their divorce to find out if it had anything to do with Bruce's death. And they soon realized that Sylvia's maiden name was Ortega, which meant she was one of the Ortega siblings who had been brutally murdered on Christmas Eve. Now, like I mentioned earlier, police had thought that there could be a second shooter at the home of Bruce Pardo, since there was a second shot fired into the ceiling and since there was a second gun found on the floor. And when they performed autopsies on the bodies from the Ortega home, they found all of the victims had been shot at least once with a 9mm handgun. So, police believed their suspect in both Bruce's death and the family massacre was probably still at large. However, it was on Christmas Day, police interviewed Letitia Ortega, who said that despite the Santa Claus costume, beard, and hat and all, she could 100% identify the shooter. And guess who that was? Sylvia Ortega's ex-husband, Bruce Pardo. Investigators then went back to Brad's house where Bruce was found and searched his car, which ended up being the same car the Ortega's neighbors had seen leaving the street right after the murders. Inside the vehicle, police found a Santa suit and thousands of rounds of ammunition. The car had also been booby-trapped to explode once the Santa suit was removed. Yes, you heard that correctly. The car would explode if this guy's Santa suit was removed. Obviously, police were not aware of this until after the vehicle exploded, unfortunately. But luckily, no one was injured when this happened. So, once Bruce, once Bruce's autopsy was finished, investigators were able to conclude that he had committed suicide and that there was a, not a second shooter. The autopsy also revealed that he had a horrific third-degree burns on his hands and arms. And part of the Santa pants had been melted to his body, which means he was obviously burned in the fire that he supposedly you know, created, we think, allegedly. Police believed he didn't initially plan to kill himself as no suicide note was found. And, and here's where this part gets interesting. So... Later, police found out that a man reported a mysterious car parked in front of his Pasadena home. Police ran the plates and found the car had been rented by Bruce Pardo. Though the car wasn't rigged, it was packed with supplies including a computer, clothes, water, food, and maps of both the U.S. and Mexico. Police obviously believed Bruce had been planning on escaping to Mexico after his killing spree. 
But after finding the car, police also learned that Bruce's getaway car was also parked about 500 feet from the house of Scott Nord. Who's that, right? Well, that is Sylvia's divorce attorney. You see, police believe that Bruce might have been planning on also murdering Scott before fleeing to Mexico. So let's back up here. Was just plain divorce the motive here? Like, what was going on? Was he mad because she was leaving him? What was it? Well, that slowly starts to come out later. So in June 2008, Bruce Pardo was ordered to pay $1,785 a month in spousal support, although the support was ultimately waived shortly after this because he had lost his job. Now, in July of 2008, Bruce's employer realized Bruce had been fraudulently billing clients for hours. He didn't actually work, and he was obviously fired. A reporter would later say that, quote-unquote, this divorce shattered Bruce Pardo. It became his obsession, and Bruce began to plot ways to get back at Sylvia. She went on to say that he decided that he wasn't just going to kill her, but he was going to kill everything that she loved and take it, wipe it off the face of the earth. Now, one thing we didn't really mention was the fire that was started in the home. Well, I mentioned it, but we didn't go into detail and we didn't really know much about this until later. Well, unfortunately, we know exactly how it was done. So during his Christmas Eve killing spree, Bruce pulled out a homemade flamethrower to spray 18 gallons of gasoline into the house once he ran out of bullets. But Bruce didn't realize that there was an open flame somewhere inside the home, which led to an explosion that left him horrifically burned. I mean, you kind of laugh, right? Talk about instant karma. (laughs) This led Bruce to go to his brother's home to commit suicide instead of going to kill Sylvia's attorney because of how badly he was burned. One of Bruce's neighbors said, kind of what we're all thinking, quote unquote, I still wonder if the suit hadn't lit on fire, just how would the story have ended? It may have been a much different ending. Now, before we finish talking about this case, I want to let you know where the survivors are now. There were actually 13 sons and daughters who lost at least one parent on this Christmas Eve night in 2008. Letitia and her husband, along with their eight-year-old daughter, who did survive being shot, she was the first one that was shot that night, they took in Letitia's sister's youngest daughter, while one of the oldest grandchildren who lost both of his parents that night became the guardian of his three minor siblings. All of the surviving Ortega family still gather every year at Christmas time for dinner to exchange gifts and to exchange memories. And Letitia has taken on the role of the new family matriarch, making sure to keep the family as tight-knit as they all once were. Wow, what? Just another horrific family murder on Christmas Eve. Kind of makes me want to skip our usual family Christmas Eve (laughs) get-together. Let me know if you're having second thoughts about that as well. But anyways, this is going to be the final 
episode of 2020, guys. Can you believe 2020 is almost finally over? I mean, 2021 has got to be better than this, right? I mean, that's all I can hope for at this point. I think that's what we all can hope for at this point. But at least it's a little bit better. Now, with that being said, typically other podcasters take a break from uploading episodes after Christmas each year. I always hate it, but I kind of get it. And now I really get it having my own, <laughs> having my own podcast. And this is something that I will be doing as well. But I will say I'm not going to be taking a break from the podcast completely. I am going to be working on more cases and more episodes, um, kind of get some of those planned out for you guys. And I want to up my game on the content for the podcast and just think of more ways I can make each episode better and maybe even make like the in-between episode time better for you guys. Um, I would like to hopefully eventually put out episodes each week. And hopefully I can do that in 2021. Don't hold me to that. I'm not going to make any more promises that I can't keep. That I will say. But I will do my best to see if I can start putting out new episodes each week for you guys instead of every two weeks. Because I love the interaction and I love talking to you guys about it. I would love to put more out there for you. So maybe... With this break, I can kind of get some pre-planned episodes out there that way or ready to go that way I'm ready each week and I don't get behind or anything like that when life throws curveballs like they have here lately. Now, that being said too, if you have any ideas on how I can make things better here or if I can, you know, if you have any suggestions for, you know, new cases or a different kind of episode or different cases, definitely let me know. Um, I would love to hear that. I'm I always say that. Please let me know if you have any case suggestions or if there's anything that you want to hear on the podcast, whether it's just case updates or, you know, I don't know, anything that you can think of to make the podcast better because this is obviously for you. So let me know if you have any any advice or any, any recommendations or feedback. Um, you can definitely go to the podcast Instagram page, which is killer.kind.pod. You can direct message me on there or you can comment on any of um, the posts there or this week's post for this episode. And to keep up to date during this break and to know when I'll be coming back um, in 2021, definitely stay up to date on the podcast Instagram page. I know a lot of you know me personally, so I'll have it on there as well, my personal social medias and stuff. But Definitely keep an eye out for updates on social media. And I just want to say thank you to everyone again. I know I've said this a lot. For all the love and support on this podcast, it truly means so much to me. And I've been having so much fun. And it's just exciting to see who all the closet true crime lovers are that tend to come out of the woodworks and tell me that they love it and they listen to nothing but true crime. It always cracks me up because some people surprise you when you look at them you're like, you like murder? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So it's pretty funny. But anyways, I hope everyone has a fantastic Christmas, a safe Christmas, and a wonderful new year. And cheers to a better year than 2020. Am I right? Stay safe out there, everyone. I love you guys. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.